I'm going to read from the book of Exodus, chapter 33, beginning verse 12, to chapter 34, verse 8. Exodus 33, 12 through 34, 8. This is utterly an essential passage if you want to understand the book of Exodus, but more so God's entire salvation program in the Old Testament as it's fulfilled in the New. You, you must understand this. Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. 
Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. This morning we are going to be doing something slightly different. If it works. Which it may not. In which case, it will be exactly like every Sunday. When nothing goes right. So... Dennis and I are going to sort out this PowerPoint. I've literally never used PowerPoint on a Sunday morning. You know that if you're here regularly. And you may say, why start now? And you would probably be wise to think that. Particularly because one of the things that we discovered this morning is that we run on antiquated VGA technology. Um, we didn't just discover that this morning. We did know that, actually. But did you know that that stuff breaks over time? And so this morning, the plug-in here is apparently missing necessary parts for visual clarity. So it's not that great at the best of times for me in technology, but there are pictures which are going to be fuzzy, okay? Which is slightly vexing because the pictures were designed for the sake of clarity. So we're, we're going to do our best uh, as we go here. It may be a little bit dark. And if this goes badly, it will never be attempted again. <laughs> and if it goes well, don't get used to it because this took me about 390 hours to put together. Okay, so just, just so you know. Uh, just so you know. Um, and the reason we do this is this. Week after week after week, year after year after year now here, I have worked through text, verse by verse by verse. That is all I intend on doing throughout the remainder of the ministry that God gives me. However, in the Old Testament law somewhere, there's a textual variant that says, once every six years you can use PowerPoint. Okay? So, so that's the intention this morning. Because part of the question is, what is a text? Now, regrettably, as someone who is forced to live in this particular time in the history of the world, a text today is something that you send on a cell phone. And so now we, have, we even do things like utterly annihilate grammar by sending these texts and then saying, I texted someone. It is utterly appalling in every possible way linguistically. Uh, so the question isn't, what is a text as in a cell phone? The question is, what is a text for interpreting, biblically speaking? Is a text a phrase? Can be. Is a text a verse? Possibly. What about a paragraph? Well, probably almost certainly then. A passage, a chapter, a book. Yes, yes, yes. In fact, I would argue that at one level, you're actually not able to interpret any particular text unless you've located it in terms of its immediate context, the book that it's in, the epoch in God's revelation in which that book itself is located, and God's complete climactic revelation from Genesis to Revelation 22. In other words, there has to be a canonical way of interpreting every text or you won't get it. Okay? So, this morning what I want to do is I want to give a bit of an overview of the entire book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is my text. And the reason that, uh, now, we could, we can do one of two things. We can take a vote. 
I can literally start in one one and just read every verse and just unfold it. Uh, okay, no one wants that. Okay, so what I'll do is I'll do the PowerPoint and we'll try to have an overview of the entire book because Exodus itself is a text. Okay, you need to read it from beginning to end as one text, and you can do that in one sitting. You really can. Just sit down and start and don't get up until you've read the book. You can do that. Or, if you need extra motivation, just decide that um, when you get home from work and you want to have supper, you're not going to have supper until you've read Exodus. You'll finish. Okay? So, so there, there are ways of getting these things done. There are micro and macro structures. So today it's, it's the macro structure. Also, because we're doing the one-year Bible reading program, and now we are, for the last couple of weeks, we've been in Exodus and there's a little bit more of Exodus to go. I am aware that Exodus is sometimes the graveyard of intentions for finishing a Bible reading program. I do know that, okay? So I'm hoping to give you some direction which will make your reading of Exodus make a little bit more sense, perhaps, and also give you all the motivation you need just to go flying into the stimulating world of Leviticus, which is coming next, okay? So before we do this, uh, let's pray. Father, we would ask that uh, in your grace you would help us. It is, our desire, uh, it is our desire to honor you. It is our desire to know your word. Too often we, we approach your word either with the utter arrogance of thinking we have comprehended it fully or with the lack of faith that says... I don't like to read. I, I, I won't get anything out of this. Forgive us for both errors, Lord. This is your word. You have given it to us because we need it and because it is good for us. And by your spirit, we can understand it. We, we confess we cannot on our own. But we serve a living God. You have not inspired the Bible wrongly. Every word is as it ought to be. So align us with your wisdom rather than trying to force you into our mold of what we find palatable. Father, this morning I pray that nothing we do will be a distraction from your truth, but that we will actually be enabled to understand, to love and to adore and to worship, Help us, Lord, this morning to be able to read our Bibles more effectively. Not so we can simply know them better in our minds, but so that we can appreciate and adore the majesty of the God of history and literature. And in adoring, be made more like you and more quick to follow you. Be with us, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. An overview of Exodus. Slide number one. Nailed it. <laughs> so, in terms of structure then, Exodus 1 through 12. We talked a little bit about this last week, so I'll be able to go quickly. First, you have Israel being fruitful and multiplying. This is in line with the covenant blessings. However, this, as is so often the case... When God's people are being blessed in spiritual categories, it often actually attracts the ire of the world. And so what you find is that precisely because God is blessing his people, you end up with persecution. So the Egyptians start to get upset. 
The infant Moses is preserved literally in the ark. The word, the Hebrew word is intentional. It's a cast to Noah. In the same way that Noah was preserved on the water, the infant Moses is preserved on the waters. Pharaoh's daughter, of course, rescues him. That is one remarkable coincidence. And then Moses, uh, when he grows up, sees an Egyptian taskmaster oppressing uh, an Israelite slave. He takes matters into his own hands. He kills the Egyptian and then has to flee for his life, spending 40 years in the desert as a shepherd. He will spend 40 years in the desert as a different type of shepherd after God liberates the people. In other words, the way that Moses tries to do it in his own strength is a right intuition, but a wrong application. God is, in fact, going to bring his people out, but God will do it in his time and in his way. God appears to Moses near the end of this 40-year period at a burning bush at Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb is another name for Sinai. And so interestingly enough, when God appears to Moses on, mount, on the mount in the burning bush, that's the same mount where God gives the covenant law at Sinai. That's the fulfillment. God says, you want a sign? The sign will be you will worship me with my people on this mountain. And so when you get to Sinai, what you have is an intratextual fulfillment of God's promise. They have the plagues and the judgment on Egypt's gods. We talked about this last week. Passover, the actual exodus. And the justice. Egypt has been killing Hebrew sons. They are killing God's firstborn. And so in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the serpent attacks God's offspring. They're the seed of the woman. And in attacking, trying to destroy the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent is destroyed. So this is a, an inter-historical fulfillment. It's a down payment of the fulfillment you will get with Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week. So then, Exodus 13 through 19. You have the crossing of the Reed or the Red Sea. The Egyptian army pursues and the Egyptian army is destroyed. You will remember that from Sunday school. You have songs of deliverance. Exodus 15. The great song exalting the, that Yahweh is my warrior. He is the one who delivers me. Uh, the, the chariots and the army of Pharaoh he has thrown into the sea. Now this, I think, actually does show proper response. It is soteriology has to end in doxology. If you're saved, you have to praise. You just can't not, right? And so they're delivered. They see this incredible, they're liberated. There's the Passover. They see this incredible deliverance and salvation through the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies being destroyed. And of course they're going to praise. What are they going to do? Play Scrabble? I mean, of course. There's other things going on, right? And so the whole point of life is to, is to know God, his saving, redemptive grace, and to praise. This redemption is the paradigm and prototype in Scripture for what Christ does. Also the paradigm and prototype for when God brings back his people from the exile in Babylon. Which, interestingly enough, the prophets will say... What God does in the, in, in the exodus from Babylon is so great that the former one in Egypt won't even be remembered anymore. So you have these steps on the way, but it's all bringing you to Christ. Now, Exodus 15, minor disappointment. You've just had this song of praise, and the first thing you have after redemption is praise and complaining. They've been three days in the desert without water. Now, lest you be too quick to condemn the Israelites wandering around in the burning tracks of wasteland, which that desert is, complaining about not having water, 
What's the last, when's the last time you complained about something? And was it that significant? I hate when the person in front of me in the drive-thru doesn't have exact change. You, we've been waiting for 10 minutes. You know what your coffee costs. You're looking for your wallet now when the person's in your trunk. Are you kidding me? Right? Three days without water. Three days without water. Let us be careful. And God provides. The very next thing is that the people are complaining about food. Lesson not learned. God provides. What's the very next thing? Complaining about water, again. Some people need to learn lessons twice. Some people need to learn lessons twice. People complain again. In fact, this is utterly essential to understanding the book of Numbers. It is, I promise you. When we get to the book of Numbers, we'll come back to this. You have to understand this sequence or numbers won't make sense to you. Then you have the first military victory. The Amalekites come out. Moses has his hands up, showing you that, again, the deliverance is with Yahweh. Holy hands lifted to God is key to military victory. Then Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, shows up, showing that supernatural leading does not exclude human wisdom. That is, Jethro gives Moses good advice and all the rest. There's human advice that goes on. And then um, the, the best line of all is that then Moses sent his father-in-law away. And I have that text, too, for, for family relations. Then, number, 19, or number 9, chapter 19. God brings his people to Sinai, where he proclaims they are his special possession, where he proclaims that they are a kingdom of priests and a royal nation. And then he adds this. If they even touch the mountain, they will die. In fact, if someone touches the mountain, the people who kill that person can't even touch them. They must be stoned or shot with arrows. In other words, they have to be executed from a distance. No one can touch the mountain. Do not think that Sinai is a place where God welcomes his people. Sinai is the place where God says, if you come close to me, I will kill you. Exodus 20 through 24. You have the ten words. The Hebrew never calls it the Ten Commandments. It's always the ten words. It's fine. We can call it commandments because we're used to that nomenclature. It starts this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's the preface to the ten words. When we talk about the Ten Commandments, we almost never remember that. But it's central. Covenant law comes after redeeming grace. You will not understand what God's doing with his covenant unless you understand that. He doesn't say, here's a bunch of law, obey it, and I'll get you out of Egypt. He says, I've gotten you out of Egypt. Now obey me. That's the sequence. Grace saves, then sanctification and obedience comes afterwards. The first four commands are directed towards God. We know that. The next six are directed towards others, showing that the relationship with God comes first. You must be rightly related to God in order to be rightly related to other people. Love God supremely, then your neighbor as yourself. You make a very good argument that when Cain kills Abel, it's because Cain first failed in worship. He failed to honor God, and because he failed to honor God, he was enabled to fail towards his brother. But a horizontal failure with each other first it sort of follows from vertical failure with God. We honor God first, then we take care of our neighbor. Chapter 21 through 23 is the book of covenant law. Uh, and the law is part with the most vulnerable, interestingly enough. 
So when God gives his law, the first thing he starts talking about is um, protection of slaves. The most vulnerable people in society are the first people God talks about when he gives his law. And then chapter 24, the Lord of glory. This is one of the most remarkable passages in, in the book. The Lord of glory who said, don't touch the mountain or you will die, says to Moses and the 70 elders, come on up and see me. And they do. They behold like his feet under this sort of translucent, transparent, sparkling, gem-like floor. And he provides a feast for them. They eat a fellowship meal and they don't die. And then Moses and Moses alone goes into the glory cloud of God, which is what will set up Luke's account of the transfiguration in his gospel. He goes into the glory cloud of God. He's there for 40 days, receiving instructions about everyone's favorite part of Exodus, the tabernacle, which just has to show how significant it is. Now, Exodus 25 through 40 properly needs to be subdivided this way. Chapters 25 through 31, chapters 32 through 34, and chapters 35 through 40. Now, at this point, people tend to give up. You don't, because you have perseverance and you're godly. But other people aren't quite as virtuous as you are, and so they give up. Part of it is, for most of us, this is hard to visualize. I can't visualize anything. I just don't have that ability. And so when I'm reading words, or when I'm looking at blueprints, I just kind of go, I, I actually have no idea what that is. I just, I just cannot picture it. This becomes difficult for other people have no have no problem with that. Even in sports, I was always the, I was always the, the player who, the coach would explain, I want you to do this. I'm like, I have no idea what you just said. Can we just like run through it a few times, then I'll get it. I could never just understand through oral explanation. So, let's give God the credit of assuming that he's not a bad author. Okay? Let's say God hasn't tried to write a book and failed. That means that, that absolutely every word in this book is precisely what it ought to be. Our responsibility then is not to clip what we don't like. Our responsibility is to figure out why God has given it to us. That's our job. But one of the greatest challenges and blessings for us is that we ought to, at the end of our lives, praise God that every word was exactly what it was in the Bible. Most of us think we could write a better Bible than God. It is utterly depraved to think that. Now, where have you seen this before? The Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses. Where have you seen that speech pattern? Well, you haven't seen it just like this with the Lord speaking to Moses like seven times. But God did speak like that once before in a pattern of seven. In Genesis 1, 3 through 2, 4, God speaks in the seven creation days. His speech always begins a new creative work. What's going on here is that the tabernacle is creation week recapitulated. That is, it, the tabernacle is God creating again. God's speech for making the tabernacle is a recreation in Genesis. Now, 
lest you think I'm lying. The sixth time God speaks to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, of the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Do you realize that that text tells you that people who are good at working with wood have a wisdom from God? That text tells you that there are different types of wisdom. People who are good at sowing have a wisdom from God. Wisdom also then requires practice. I have that wisdom. It's just latent right now. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Oh, wait a minute. What's the climax on the sixth day in Genesis 1? What does God do? What does he create? Adam and Eve. And what's their job? He creates two people to take care of his creation. The sixth time God speaks to the tabernacle, he says, I have two people who are going to take care of this project. The seventh time God speaks. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. What's the seventh day all about in Genesis? Sabbath. What God is doing is he is very transparently giving tabernacle instructions in a mirror of the creation week in Genesis 1. So when God is creating the tabernacle, he is recapitulating the creation of the world. Now, I could argue this at tremendous length in enormous amount of detail, but... I'll move on. I'll come back to you in one second. So this is God's tabernacle pattern language. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern. There's a couple times God says that in the text. Exactly like the pattern. I want it just this way. Why? Because Because he's persnickety? Maybe. But because it's symbolic. It has to be a certain way. You don't mess up recreation. What God is doing in the tabernacle is he's revealing the divine architecture of his own heavenly home. He's building a replica of his heavenly dwelling on earth. Hebrews explicates this. It's his pattern language for his own home. Eden, we know this from Genesis. If you pay careful attention to Genesis 2 and 3, what you discover is that Eden is a sanctuary filled with priests, Adam and Eve. But Eden is a sanctuary that reflects heaven. All of the imagery in Scripture has to be read backwards to forward, or sort of back to front. We say, well, historically, God, there was Eden first, then tabernacle, then temple, then Jesus, then church, then revelation. So that's the sequence. It echoes forward. Yes, it all echoes forward in terms of revelation, but when God first creates, he creates with the end in view. And so he creates it on the basis of the heavenly pattern. We're told that again and again and again. The earthly pattern echoes to the heavenly one because it's been front-loaded. So Eden is designed to reflect sanctuary. The tabernacle is a sanctuary that reflects Eden slash heaven. And then Revelation 21 through 22 will show that the new heavens and new earth is a glorified temple, tabernacle, Eden sanctuary. But that's 
God declares the end from the beginning. That was always the point. So the tabernacle, Jared, Eden is designed to mere heavenly realities, and the tabernacle is designed to mere Eden, which mirrors heaven. This is God's gracious self-disclosure of sacred space. And maybe it looks like this. Now, interestingly enough, um, I don't have a laser pointer. So whenever someone's going to throw in some money for HDMI, get me a laser pointer too. Um, See this little box here? I don't think that was original. I think that looks like a power box of some kind with wires running into it. Um, I, I, th- I don't know why they took the picture. They should take the picture on the other side. Like, I have no idea what they were doing. But uh, that wasn't part of the original. But that's probably pretty close to what it looked like, actually. Um, interesting enough, the, Bible, the biblical text doesn't say this, but we actually know um, historically now, we've found some other documents, that say that, that that original curtain wall was built to keep the Canaanites out. And Moses made them pay for it. An amazing thing. Uh, so some of these things actually, you know, there, there are biblical, biblical precedent for some uh, political things that happen today. It's really quite amazing. Uh, I have to admit, uh, it did remind me, I was reading a, you know, Henry V uh, yesterday, it did remind me that there's this great line in Henry V where you know, they're going to go marching into France. And, and Henry says, well, we can't just go marching to France without leaving people here to protect us from the Scots. You know, like, like, you gotta, there's, there's all these McEwans running around. Like, You've you got to leave some of the army back here. Right? And, and Lord Canterbury says, they of those marches, glorious sovereign, shall be a wall sufficient to defend our inland from those pilfering borderers. But, my goodness, Trump would be a lot more persuasive if he knew English. Like, like literature, like, like not the language, you know, but, but English literature, you know, there's some punch to that, those pilfering borderers. <laughs> Moving on. Um, so, what you discover then is that the tabernacle goes dead in the middle. This is the proper habitat for humanity. We are to be built around God. He puts himself right in the middle of the camp. He's surrounded by the Levites and then the rest of Israel. There are concentric circles of holiness. Now, here's an obvious but critical observation. Chapters 25 to 31 describe the instructions for building the tabernacle. Chapters 35 through 40 describe its actual construction. That's your repetition. You ever wonder, what's going on here? Didn't we just read this? Yes. You read the instructions, and now you're being told. And what they did was follow the instructions, and you're given the instructions again. Now, here's what's really important. Exodus 32 through 34 are in the middle. Just so you know. Moving on. But why is that so important? It's so important for this reason. What happens in those chapters? The golden calf. Moses comes down, having just been in the glory of God, having received the blueprint for God's dwelling on earth, and the people have already broken all of the commandments. Some people want to say that when Moses is angry and breaks the law, he, he sinned when he did so. I don't think that's the case at all. I think when Moses breaks the law, what he is doing is he is actually just showing in an enacted way what the people have done. They have shattered the law. What good is this law covenant when the people have broken it? It's not good for anything, and he shatters it. He throws it down. He's never, he, he is never condemned in Scripture for this act. 
the breaking of the law is symbolism. The law is already broken. That didn't take long, did it? What's the first thing that people do after they sing their, their, their praise for redemption? They grumble. What's the first thing they do after meeting with God on Sinai? They break every law there is. So then you have God's wrath and judgment. And then the revelation of God's glory and name, which we read. And then God's promise to continue to be with his people even in the middle of their camp. The structure of the text draws your attention to it. Those chapters are in the middle. Where is God going to live? He's going to live in the middle of his people. But how can he? They've broken the law. Well, somehow God is not going to allow our sin to destroy his saving plan. Now, the overall ABA literary structure of Exodus 25:40 actually brings attention to that B section as the key. So you're given the tabernacle instructions. God says, I am going to build my home in the middle of your camp. The people destroy the law. And if you have any sensibility whatsoever, you say, well, God can't live with his people anymore. This middle text, and then when you have, and God did, and they built it, they built it, they built it, just like the pattern, just like the pattern, just like the pattern. You know what you're being shown? What God said he was going to do even through the rebellion with the golden calf, he's still going to do it exactly like he said. Exactly like he said. That's why there's a repetition. Because God wants you to know that in redemption, he is going to give you exactly what he said he was going to give you. Your, their sin does not destroy his saving plan. Now that is a soft pillow for a weary head at night. The literary structure of the text is part of the message. Now, there are also particular details which are important. You'll remember that Frank Lloyd Wright at one point said that form follows function. That has been misunderstood, and it has. Form and function should be one joined in a spiritual union. You, you can't argue with, with Frank Lloyd Wright when it comes to design. Uh, you can't argue with Andrew Lloyd Webber when it comes to musicals. There are certain people who are just authorities, and Frank Lloyd Wright is one of them. So what does this mean then? You know, form and function need to be joined together in a spiritual union. I actually think that it's perfectly exemplified in the tabernacle. So, in terms of forms and functions, mediums are always bounded. Creativ creativity has to take place in bounded spheres. It just, it just does. So musical composition is creativity in accord with a form. There is, there's almost endless variation, but there is a form which constrains it. In terms of farming or gardening, what you have, uh, Wendell Berry makes it clear in Standing by Words, what you have is you have boundaries drawn that mark off certain spaces, more properly, certain places. Space and place aren't quite the same thing certain places from the boundless. There are certain places that need to be, spaces that need to be controlled. And so you work inside of a particular form. Language. Incredible creativity, but in a linguistic medium. Pottery, arts, whatever you're doing, there are certain functions and forms that need to go together. Creativity takes place inside of spheres. This is also true for sports. 
um, you, you, you can imagine, uh, you know, with, with Tanya Harding, you can imagine if she said something like when, you know, in, in 1994 at Lilyhammer, when her, her laces came undone, you know, before her, her free skate. Uh, you know, you, you could imagine her saying something like, well, you know, don't you know that, that if you've been sort of implicated in a plot to injure your rival, then if your laces come undone in the first 30 seconds of your program, you automatically get the gold medal. Like, you can say something like that, and everyone else would say, that's insanity. Like, like, that's not how skating works. Now, there's all kinds of creativity in the form, but you can't step outside of the form. You can't just make things up as you go along. I mean, she was the first person to land a triple axle in competition. So she did push the boundaries of the form to something that people didn't think could be done by a woman. But she was still inside of the form. Creativity and genius takes place inside of form. Of course, triple axles and stow cows and all these other sorts of things. Uh, stow cows and axles are edge jumps. You, you do know that difference, right? And so, you know, total loop and a lut, they're the, the pick jumps. You, you, you know that. But one of the things that we didn't say, although now it's time to be honest, is that when two years ago, when Pastor Sam actually broke his legs, it was on the back end of a, of a triple stow cow double toe flip. But... Um, but, uh, you know, we, we wanted to keep that a little bit of a secret until now. Um, although, if anyone wants to watch, anyone wants to watch the, the Olympic Figure Skating Championship, I'm sure Sam would be more than happy to host. Now, even I'm, I'm not joking. I would be there. Uh, now, even having said that, how many of you remember Calvin and Hobbes, the cartoon Bill Waters, Calvin and Hobbes, right? John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes are, are, the, are the philosophical characters you need to understand in order to know what's actually going on in their dialogue all the time. But Calvin Ball was this game where you just made up the rules as you went along. And if you've ever played it, it's actually only fun if you're playing with people who are clever. But uh, you, you can actually play this, and, and you just sort of make things up. So people try to score, you say, oh, no, 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 sorry, that doesn't count. Like, well, that's five points for you, but after you do that, if I grab the ball and you know, knock you unconscious with a brick, then I get ten points. So you just keep playing and playing and playing and playing, just making things up as you go. It's actually quite a riot. We're going to play that at Stamps House during the Olympics. Uh, figure skating. But even Calvin Ball only makes sense when you're playing Calvin Ball. Like, it would be absolute chaos, again, at the Olympics, if the figure skaters just decide that, you know, if they, if they kick someone, then they win, or whatever. Creativity and form. Even the human body has a form. There's a bounded way to be human. There is humanity. We need to follow natural and moral laws. So my relatively ignorant opinion about form and function is that they're reciprocal. Form is necessary for function, but function also nuances form. And the tabernacle and everything in it are revealing to us the form and function of sacred space. That's their job. So the Ark of the Covenant. You have the pure gold. It's overlaid with pure gold, but the lid and the cherubim are pure gold. The cherubim are the guardians of God's holiness. They kill you if you get close to God. God stands, well, what some translate that is a mercy seat, which is an awkward translation for something you stand on, not sit on. But God appears on the top on the lid. The box originally stores the ten words. Other things will be added, but originally the ten words. On the Day of Atonement, you put blood on the top. The cherubim have their wings touching, looking down, which means this. On the Day of Atonement, the cherubim look down 
and they see the sacrificial blood of the Lamb covering the law that you've broken. It is a powerful picture of atonement. The table and the bread of the presence. The Lord dines on a table of gold with vessels of gold. He is not a pauper. There's enough bread for everyone. One loaf for, the to- for each of the twelve tribes. The king is hospitable. He is lavish and generous. Come to his table. The lampstand. The tabernacle was actually very dark. There were no windows. So light's a practical necessity. That's just for the, for the priests. Yahweh doesn't need light. But the priests do. Now, nobody ever burned oil unless they were home. Despite what that little electrical box panel looked like uh, outside of the tabernacle picture, they didn't have that back then. Or if they did, it wasn't plugged into a generator, so it was kind of useless. Nobody burned oil unless they were home. God gives special instructions. I want that lamp burning how often? Day and night. What does that tell you? It tells you that the Lord is always home. And awake, incidentally. God is always at home and always awake. They have the high priest garments. The high priest garments are, first of all, in royal colors. Yahweh is so great, he has a royal priest. A king priest, if you will. Beauty is important. Yahweh has an aesthetic sensibility. Several times you're told, make the garments beautiful and for glory. The people are represented by precious stones on the breastplate piece. And then on the turban, in gold, you have engraved deeply, holy to the Lord. That's the most important feature of the high priest garment. He is reserved for God. Now, what you get, if you track through this theme carefully through the Old Testament, you get an amazing thing in Zechariah. Do they even remember? What is holy to the Lord in Zechariah? Where is it inscribed then? This is, this is one of the parts that you get to the Old Testament you just fall down and worship. It's inscribed on the bells of horses and on the cooking pots of Jerusalem. In other words, the vision is that in the future, the pot you cook craft dinner in is as holy to God as the high priests of Israel. Because the glory of God transfuses everything. May God help us to live to see that day. This is the flow of sacred space and holiness. High priest to priest to Levite to ceremonially clean Israel. This is what's important in Leviticus. It's concentric circles. So, So the high priest is a priest, but not every priest is the high priest. Priests are all Levites, but not every Levite is a priest. Levites are Israelites, but not every Israelite is a Levite. Clean Israelite, unclean Israelite, pagan. That's the flow. Most holy place, holy place, courtyard, Israelite camp, outside the camp. That's the flow. Sacrificial animals, clean animals, unclean animals. That's the flow. Every sacrificial animal is a clean animal, but not every clean animal that you can eat is a sacrificial animal. And then the material. If you work through Exodus carefully, what you find is there's a movement of value. Gold to silver to bronze. The further you get away from the presence of Yahweh, the cheaper the materials become. The closer you get to his presence, the more valuable they become. That's instructive. Then in Exodus 40, 
God moves in. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night, and in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Exodus ends by saying, here were the tabernacle instructions, here was the rebellion, here was the building, God moves in, he's still with his people. The people who built the golden calf, the people who broke the law, God is still with them. That's the note the book ends on. It's an incredible thing. If you've been working through who these people are, you don't expect this as the end. You expected death as the end. But it's life. The Lord in the middle of his people. Which raises this question. How can a holy God live in the midst of a rebellious and unholy people? And the only answer is this. It's got to be grace that provides atonement. There's no other way. The book of Leviticus, which picks up linguistically exactly where Exodus ends, is about what? Sacrifice, cleansing, and holiness. Which is what the people need for a holy God to live in their middle. And then Leviticus also contains the holiness code, which teaches righteous living in God's presence. So Leviticus, so, so the question at the end of Exodus is, how can God actually live here? He is, but how? Leviticus says, atonement, cleansing, sacrifice, and start living better. God will forgive your sins, but you better start being holy as he's called you to be. Now, lastly, this tabernacle is only the shadow, but Jesus is the substance. Every element, if I had a lot of time, I'd go through every element of the tabernacle and, and, and try to argue with how it points to Jesus. But some things are pretty clear. Atonement cover, where the sacrificial blood goes, where the, where the guardians of God's holiness look down and see blood instead of law. Whose blood covers our sin and law breaking? The bread of the presence, the fellowship. What is the bread that we, that we eat together symbolize? The light. Who is the light from the lantern? Who is the light of the world? The basin outside for washing and becoming clean. Who washes us? The altar where the sacrifice is burned. What did that altar point forward to? This tabernacle is all about Jesus. You, you should not be able to read Exodus without seeing Jesus in every paragraph. And that's what kills us when we give up. We're not trying to see Jesus, but he's there. John 1.14 the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Dwelling, He made His dwelling among us. Dwelling is literally tabernacled. He set up His tent amongst us. That's literally what John says. What does that mean? It means Exodus. It means the same way that Yahweh put his tabernacle in the middle of his people. The real tabernacle is the word incarnate in the middle of his people. He tabernacled with us. Glory. We have seen his glory. Where do you get glory in Exodus? Exodus 40. The climax is the Shekinah glory of Yahweh fills the tabernacle. Who's the tabernacle? Jesus. When you see Jesus, what do you see? The glory of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of Exodus. Grace and truth. God self-describes himself in Exodus 34, 6 as love and faith. The Lord, the Lord abounding in love and faithfulness. Chesed and Amet. The accent on, there's no one English word that translates chesed. It's so multifaceted. But it's a gracious covenantal love. 
And faithfulness is faithfulness, truth, reliability. So when John says that Jesus, is, we have, he is the Son, full of grace and truth, what you're hearing is, Exodus 34, 6, grace and truth is chesed and amet. It is the self-designation of God. So Jesus in Exodus is the tabernacle. He's the things in the tabernacle. He is the glory of God that fills the tabernacle. He is the proclamation of the name of God in that central middle section, which is necessary to understand all that's going on around it. So the ultimate answer to how can a holy God live amongst an unholy people is this. It's because of the word of God, the incarnate son, Jesus. He is the tabernacle. And he comes and he takes away our sin. He makes us holy. Now that makes reading the Bible in a year worthwhile. Jesus is Exodus. He's also Leviticus and Numbers. Deuteronomy? Yep. Keep going. Jesus is the point of all of God's revelation. May God give us eyes to see. And may God give us hearts to love and to worship. We're going to do that now. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in worship. And afterwards, you are not going to go out and grumble about food and water.